You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Mark chapter 8, verse 33. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, please um, give us minds to pay closer attention to your word. Please soften our hearts to be willing to receive what you have to tell us and to follow you. Please bless me as I preach to be a useful um, instrument in making your word clear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, I want to begin this morning uh, in a sort of uh, uncharacteristic and unusual way. I want to tell you about a very recent personal experience I had um, just two or three days ago, and I, two days ago. And I usually refrain from doing these sorts of things because I don't want the pulpit to become an excuse for me to indulge my narcissism. <laughs> um, but it's important and it's corrective to something I've said from the pulpit before uh, and does have to do with our gospel lesson today. So um, as is uh, um, not and in the ordinary course of marriage, um, Karen and I had a big conflict on Friday night. And it was one of those ones where after you kind of go into separate rooms, just complete, like no idea how to get through it. Like, I don't understand what I'm doing. I don't understand what she's doing. I don't understand really what the issue is. You know, those of you who are married, I imagine might be able to relate. And just that bewilderment of like, I just, I, it's like a dark, a room with the lights off. I can't see how to get through the room. There's, it's completely dark to me. Um, and to my great surprise, I felt the Lord um, prompt me in my heart to l- open up a particular book to look into for some clue to guidance. Um, and some of you uh, might gasp to hear which book it was. It was the Wisdom of the Enneagram, <laughs> um, which some of you may know I've historically um, despised all personality tests, perhaps especially the one about the Enneagram. But what I found in the book um, uh, were insights. Well, first, I found my life described as if there was a camera in the room. It was like that feeling, as I'm sure you would get in all kinds of things, helpful books, um, helpful conversations, sometimes hopefully the scriptures where you're like, this is describing exactly me exactly now. And it was that moment of, okay, this, in this case, this book, this Enneagram personality work, um, had a lot of illumination for me to, to, to receive. Shining light on the conflict I had with Carrie and kind of opening up that, and thanks be to God, the next morning we were able to talk it through, and lo and behold, that actually was exactly the issues at play. Um, and it actually, and I just to say this kind of confessionally to you as my brothers and sisters in this community of the Good Shepherd, it shone a backwards light actually on all of the conflicts of my life, <laughs> some of which I've had with some of you. And I realize um, new light and how I've so often approached conflict in the wrong way, both in approach and substance. And I just, um, I'm sort of that fine line between humbled and humiliated between that. And I want to do conflict differently with you when we conflict, when we clash. I want to do it differently and better um, with some of these tools from this book, which I once thought was terrible and now I think is amazing. <laughs> um, I know some of you have been trying to tell me for a long time that there's good things in that, in that Enneagram book, and you were right, and I was wrong. Um, so um, I wanted to say that to correct the record, because I have thrown some shade on personality, uh, self-knowing, uh, self-help type books in the past. It turns out they actually can be incredibly useful. 
but you knew that already. Um, but I also think there's a small analogy, and this is a thin analogy, and I usually try and make better illustrations than this for preaching. For those of you who are visiting, they're not always this abstract or um, personal. <laughs> but I think there's some analogy uh, into what, how we see Peter carry himself in this exchange with the Lord uh, recorded in Mark chapter 8. So I want to pivot uh, and look at to the gospel text this morning. So Jesus says plainly, um, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus counter-rebukes Peter, and, that, and then gives the teaching about he who saves his life will lose it, right? That's the event we just heard recorded in the gospel. And one of the things that sort of seemed really relatable to me is that when Peter heard Jesus say, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, it's almost like that got him so riled up, he didn't even hear like the last bit of the sentence. Like Jesus has just said like a mind-blowing clause, and I'm going to rise again, which outside of sort of like shock and anxiety, you'd be like, rise again, tell me more, right? But Peter, it's as if like the, the, the horror of um, Jesus suffering and dying, it was just like a ringing in his ears. It's as if he didn't even hear the last part of what Jesus was trying to say. And that's the bit I relate to maybe empathically a lot this weekend of like, in the midst of things that you're like, are frightening, you don't want to hear, you don't even hear the rest of the story. It's just white noise after. I recognize that fearful response in Peter as something in my own life. So um, rather recklessly, Peter decides the best plan of action is to tell the Son of God that he's got his plans mixed up. Not a, not a great idea. <laughs> And it seems like the Lord would have almost taken it just in stride, but then he saw the other disciples looking on and he realized this needed to be a teaching moment. And so, because it says, he turns and saw his disciples. And then he counter-rebukes Peter and he says, um, really gently, right? You are not, well, actually the first part's not gentle. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> but then he explains, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. To unpack what Jesus is saying against Peter's reaction, I think what Jesus is saying to Peter is, look, yeah, Peter, from a human perspective, a merely human perspective, suffering is only bad and should never be the plan. Right? That's what Peter's thinking. No, 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 this can't be the plan. But from God's perspective, suffering can be redeemed and could actually work a greater good than the absence of the suffering. And in God's mysterious providence, it's sometimes the plan. Right? It was the plan for his son, Jesus, and sometimes it's his plan for us. Sometimes he rescues us from suffering, and sometimes he permits it for us to go through. The arch example of this, of course, the center of it all being the cross of Christ, which to man's mind, if you picture some Roman traveling salesman who was just passing by and knew nothing of the narrative, he just saw a man hanging from the cross, that passerby would think, well, that guy failed or whatever he was doing. Right? From a merely human perspective, it would look like failure. But in reality, right, if you have your mind set on the things of God, in reality, this, our Lord hanging on the cross, is accomplishing the salvation of the entire world for all time. The opposite of a failure. The greatest accomplishment, in fact. And this split, sort of, things on he- mind on things on heaven, mind on the things of man, um, actually helps us to kind of unpack the, the cryptic saying that Jesus gives us his general teaching about whoever would save his life will lose it, 
and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. I think part of what can kind of crack open the nut of that beautiful saying is to see that these di- how it is broken apart by these different vantage points. That if your mind is only set on the things of man, being a Christian, following the way of Christ, accepting our cross, um, may look, actually will look like losing your life. But in reality, in, from heaven's perspective, it's being saved. This um, vantage point enables us to do what would be impossible with mere human-mindedness, what's only possible with heaven-mindedness, which is to embrace the cross, to embrace even permitted suffering that God has given us, if it's his will, to receive it from him. And in so doing, in embracing, to be united to Christ in his death. This is Paul's prayer at the end of Philippians, right? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Paul actually wanted to suffer with, in and alongside Christ. Christ called Peter and he's calling us uh, to not set our minds on the things of man when we consider especially the trials of this life, the difficulties of following Christ, and of, frankly, of seeking to follow his commandments even, the great difficulties of it. The gain is only visible from a heavenly mindedness. Paul said if we were Christians for this life only, if it wasn't somehow connected to the eternal life to come, we'd be to be pitied above all people. Jesus is giving us the bigger perspective so we can bear the hard news that sometimes comes with following Christ. Um, But as well as being earthly-minded when it comes to hard news, the hard news of the cross, um, tragicomically, we also um, can be earthly-minded when it comes to the good news, the gospel. The bad news can sometimes be too much for us to bear in our flesh, but the good news is actually greater than we can comprehend in our flesh. So I want to actually switch from thinking about Romans to hear the good news as it's proclaimed in one of the great synopses of what is this good news that we claim to believe in Romans chapter 8. As we just heard, God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Which in a single phrase, all of a sudden, now we can understand that wild episode in Genesis 22 that we heard well read of like, Wait, why is God telling Abraham to offer his son? And then he does it, and he's commended, and he's spared from actually killing Isaac. This was to give us a picture of what the deepest love, the greatest act of offering, would look like when God the Son took on flesh to die for us, when God the Father sent his Son to take on our flesh. God, will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And here for two verses, Paul enters sort of this image of a courtroom, this idea of a charge, like an accusation. So think in a courtroom for a second. It is God who justifies. So in this sort of, these two verses, what's being presented is picture God kind of in the judge's bench. He is the one who will judge, but it's his intent to find us righteous, to justify, to be found to be not guilty. And not only found to be not guilty, but by the power of the Holy Spirit to be made to be not guilty. 
God who is in the judge's seat is the one who justifies. And even that, more than that, we are told that Jesus is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us in the same picture of a courtroom as our attorney representing us. I never really thought much until this morning about Christ the attorney, but it's, it's true. He's, he's appealing on our behalf. So the judge and the attorney are in cahoots to work for our release. We're in good shape to become before the trial of God. And that's why the Spirit could speak through St. Paul with such confidence that there is absolutely nothing that's going to get in the way of his intent and his plan to rescue us from sin and from death. Nothing that can get in the way of his love that he has for us, which animates his saving plan. Which is why the Spirit says through St. Paul, um, to paraphrase, not even the worst demon in hell, that's what it, angels nor rulers, not any material circumstance, not the worst sin that you've ever done in your past, however grievous, none of these things can get in the way, can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from his love. And it takes a certain heavenly-mindedness to uh, to understand and receive this truth. Because in our earthly-mindedness, it's too good to be true. Nothing is that good and that free, right? In earthly, man-made terms. And so one of the things we see in every world religion that's ever been just invented by a person, and even in the Christian heart, when we um, are thinking in merely earthly terms rather than heavenly, is we try and think, well... That's all like a bit too big. Maybe if I just sort of like at some, make some smaller scale religious game where I do these things and I'll kind of please God and then I'll get to heaven. That's false religion. That's thinking and setting your mind on the things of man, not the things of heaven. We get a glimpse into heaven through Romans 8 and the, the glimpse is one of largesse and mercy and bounty. Not of trying to earn some peace by our small deeds of obedience. So I invite you not only to um, set your mind, not set your mind on the things of man, but to set your mind on the things of God with regards to what is difficult that Christ calls us to, but also to what is glorious. To set your mind on the wonderful, bountiful things of God, not on the things of man. Amen. Amen.